Thanks for listening to this sermon from River of Life Alliance Church. We hope the Holy Spirit uses it to point you toward Jesus. If you call River of Life home, we'd encourage you to join a journey group where you can unpack our sermons with a group of people who want to get to know you, who will care for you, read the Bible with you, pray over you, and serve alongside you. Got some good news for you today. We have a youth pastor candidate that is going to be coming. And uh, so I want to introduce to you on the screen here, Taylor and his wife, Brittany Spielman. And uh, this young couple, 25 years old, Taylor is, and uh, he's currently serving as a college campus ministry director in a church in Santa Cruz, California. And uh, they'll be here on March 18th, three weeks from today, uh, March 18th through the 21st. They'll be here on a Sunday and also on a Wednesday. Taylor's also working on an online degree from Western Seminary currently, and uh, he'll be able to finish that up from a distance were they to move here. Um, we, as a committee, this, the screening committee that's gone through this and the governing board, those of us who have talked with them, we're very impressed with Taylor's relational skills. His, he's just a genuine person. His personality is just so genuine and his teachability. Uh, he has strong ministry experience in camp and uh, in youth ministry. And uh, that comes through in his, in his uh, communication to us. Um, he comes from a non-alliance background, but he's excited about ministry in the alliance and uh, what God might do in that. And uh, we believe that he's a good fit for the culture of River of Life and Grand Junction. And uh, so it'll be exciting to have him come visit us in just a couple of weeks. So March 18th through the 21st uh, are the dates. And we want to make sure on that Sunday that we have an opportunity for parents and students to meet him. And so block that time out, parents and students. Even if your kids don't go to youth group, we really would love for you to be able to meet him. And uh, this is a good chance to start getting plugged into our, our youth ministry and uh, be a part of that. One thing I, I failed to mention here that I, I realized I had written down here, but I didn't tell you anything about Brittany, his wife. Um, Brittany's a, a second grade elementary school teacher. And uh, they don't have any kids, but they do have a cat. <laughs> yeah. It's all right, though. Um, <laughs> I'm really excited, though, about Taylor and Brittany and, and the way that God's been working. He's been stirring things behind the scenes and uh, just pleased to be able to um, let you know about them. And, and we'll get, be able to get to know them better on the 18th. But let's just pray about that right now. Could we do that as a church? Just pray about this um, candidating and, and the whole process here. Father, we, we thank you for the fact that you are working and you're stirring things and you, you move your people to where you want them to be, to be effective in the kingdom. And Lord, we just want your heart. We want to hear from you. We need discernment from you. Would you continue to unfold that and show us your will? Unfold that for Taylor and, and Brittany as they seek that. And uh, Lord, uh, we just pray that you will um, be working in a mighty way to to reveal what you want. And uh, God, thank you for leading us to this couple. Um, we just pray that as they prepare for this, um, that they will they will sense your presence with them as well. And uh, so, Lord, we just commit all of this to you. It's in your hands, and we we know it's best in your hands too. And uh, so, Lord, we leave it there and and trust you in it. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, as we uh, begin today, we're starting a series called Lost and Found. A series that my prayers will help you learn how to share the good news, equip you to do that. It's, 
it's not so much a theological treaty as much as it is a time of learning how to from Scripture, what it looks like, what God's call to us as followers of Jesus is when it comes to sharing the good news. So we're going to take about a month to do that over these next couple of weeks. Today maybe is a little more of the, the meatiest one of them, of the four messages. It's going to be a challenging message today, I think. It's, it's a heavy one, but I believe that God will speak to us. Jesus was the ultimate evangelist, right? He had a little advantage, but he was the ultimate evangelist. In John chapter 4, for example, we get the, a story of an interesting encounter with Jesus. The short version of it goes like this, is that Jesus was walking through Samaria, and he stops to sit down. And a woman approaches him, and he asks her for a drink, and they talk, and he asks her to go find her husband. And she replies that she has been in a string of broken relationships and her current man is not her husband. And she then asks Jesus a question about the temple. And he tells her that people can worship God anywhere. She asks him about the Messiah and he reveals to her that he is the Christ. And then after that, she responds in relationship to him, and she runs off then and tells the, her whole village to come and meet Jesus. It's a simple and famous story, but Jesus is the ultimate evangelist. We might look at that and say, well, that's Jesus. He has everything he needs because he's God, unfair advantage. He also is inviting people to a relationship with himself, which is a little different than inviting people to a relationship with someone you don't necessarily see physically in front of you. But our world, our, our, our world is in need of a church that wakes up to the calling of God that we are all called to the job of evangelism, the sharing of the good news. This week, we all grieved when we heard the news that one of the greatest evangelists of time, Billy Graham, passed away. And I think in my mind, and maybe in your mind, many of us thought, who will fill those shoes? Who will do this? I mean, Billy Graham preached to over 100 million people, saw over a million people come to Christ. We need people like Billy Graham, but we also need churches filled with people who say, this is my job. God has called me as a follower of Jesus to also be a person who proclaims the good news, who doesn't say I need a program or just a church context to do this, but say in my own life, I want the burning passion to be a man or woman who shares the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can remember my story and the experience that I've gone through, and I've seen great victories in the area of evangelism, and I've seen struggles in it. A few years ago, two years ago, I remember a guy who came and I began to build a friendship with. A guy that maybe wouldn't be my typical friend. A guy who fell outside of that context. He happened to show up in church one Sunday with a woman that I found out was his girlfriend. And as they sat there with a family and, and they began to hear the word of God, they were responding to that. But I was building a friendship and a relationship with him. Over time, I was able to invite him into a men's group that several of us had. And he sat listening to that story and God was doing a work in him during that time. After a while, he and his wife who had come to church, or sorry, he and his girlfriend who had come to church were hearing the, the truths of Scripture. They were responding to the truths of Scripture slowly over a period of time. 
They were hearing about a God who is holy, who, who has a context for relationships and a context for marriage. And the conviction of God was upon them. And they came to me and they said, hey, Brian, would you perform our wedding ceremony for us? We feel like we need to do this to be right before God. I said, I'd be glad to do that. And so we began premarital counseling. And in that time, we got to know them better. And his wife, one Sunday, responded to the gospel at the end of a message. And one week, as we were going through premarital counseling, as I got to know this guy, as he'd become a friend of mine, I thought, you know what, now's the time. I could tell he hadn't quite fully responded to the Lord. He was listening to Scripture, but he hadn't yet given his life to Christ. He hadn't yet trusted Christ to be his Savior. So I took him to lunch one day at Subway, and it was the easiest thing I'd ever seen God do there. And I just simply shared the gospel, and I said, have you responded to this? Have you ever trusted Christ and asked God to forgive you of your sins? No. Do you want to? Yeah. And it was the simplest thing I'd ever seen because the Spirit of God was already working in him. But you know what? That, wasn't, that hasn't always been my story. I've had some pretty difficult times of learning what it means and how to be used by God. And I've had times when I've shared my faith and people just completely rejected it. I remember my experience as a student beginning to feel the burden of the need for people to know Jesus. And I remember being trained as as about a sophomore in high school in evangelism explosion. And going to people's houses and trying to share the gospel in in a drop-in way. I remember going to... uh, a conference called Operation Good News, OGN. And some of you who grew up in the Alliance, if you were in youth groups, you might have gone to this. And they taught you how to go out on the street and share your faith. And I remember coming away from some of those experiences feeling very frustrated because I was not seeing any fruit from that. I honestly look back and I wonder if some of it was because a lot of those, re- those moments lacked the, the, the relationship, a time of actually speaking with somebody that I knew. And I felt ill-equipped many times. I didn't know the answers to, to questions or things that were being brought up to me and, and the conversation that we have had. Sometimes I backed away then. And I said, well, God, I don't know how to do this. It seems like you're not using me in this. I remember times of even being mocked for things when I would speak up for Christ and I would say something about the gospel or say something about my faith. It felt unnatural to me at times. You know, the statistics would tell us that in a church like ours, for the majority of people, it's been a long time since we've shared our faith. It's been a long time since we've been very open about our faith. And we might even be shocked if we were to ask in a room like this, when was the last time you shared your faith? The reasons for that would probably vary. Some of the models that we've used or the ways that we've approached sharing our faith are today outdated in the approach, although the message is the same. Maybe we feel like we've been opposed and therefore we just kind of shut down to it. Or we hope that people will just show up at church. And sometimes in a growing, life-giving church, people do just show up. But most of the time, it's because of a relationship that people show up in a church like this. Sometimes we don't know what to say or we're just too busy to even really think about it with people. Sometimes we're engaged in controversy when it comes to a conversation about the gospel rather than a conversation, rather than putting Jesus Christ on display, who's the glory of God, rather than putting him on display, we turn it into a controversy and, a, and just a, a tension-filled time of, of talking. 
Sometimes we're just devastated when a person rejects the gospel. Other times we've confused politics with the gospel or we've begun a conversation that's more focused on trying to get a person to convert to morals than convert to Christ. And so these kinds of things sit in a room like this. They sit in us and sometimes they have a paralyzing effect. But our neighbors and our coworkers are having spiritual conversations all the time. And oftentimes we're missing out on engaging in that. They're asking great questions. They're thinking about these things. And God calls us as a people, as a church, as we're going to find in these next couple of weeks to be engaged in that. And I don't mean engaged in the sense of I can pat myself on the back because I got my friend to come to church. But no, because you can share the good news of Christ with anybody. You can do it. If you have the Holy Spirit living within you, you can begin to do that. You can take steps out in that. Now, I'll be completely honest about the motives of this series. It's born out of prayer. It is not to grow our church, although it may result in growth in our church. Because this is about lives of people that we love and people that we don't yet love. This is about the lives, the eternal destiny of our neighbors and our friends and our family members. And so it's weighty. It's important, and I think it's one that we need to lean into with, with full force. And we're going to learn, and, and I want us to be praying for the heart of God to be implanted in us so that we can give that away to other people. The Word of God will be our guide. And so today we're going to begin here. We're going to begin with this. The good news is only good when you understand how bad the bad news is. Because light is grand Especially if you understand how dark darkness is. God, would you put within us, move us intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, move our souls to be burdened today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, have you ever been lost? Lost is a terrible feeling, isn't it? It's awful to be lost. We can get lost physically. And we can be lost intellectually. We can be lost emotionally. It's a horrible feeling once you realize how lost you are sometimes. Trying to regain your bearings. But it's not so bad until you know your condition. We can live in ignorance about how lost we are. Lost is a position of billions of people in our world. Lost is a condition that billions of people have died in in our world. And in centuries past, the Bible uses it to describe those who are far away from the Father's house, who haven't found their way back to Him. These are lost people. It means to be away, to be in a place of ruin and destruction, and oftentimes to not even know it or realize it. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5 to gain a couple of nuggets out of that today. So if you'll turn to Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, we're going to pick up in the middle of an argument that Paul has been developing here throughout these first couple chapters of the book of Romans. We don't have time to go back and look at all of the things that Paul has said prior to this, but Paul's beautifully laid out the need for salvation and the beauty of justification by faith to this point in the book. 
And as we come in here, there's, there's tucked into this development of thought a couple of verses that talk about the original source of sin, the issue of really what's going on behind this, that describe the issue of the lostness of man. So we're going to read Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. I'm going to give a very simple explanation to it. We're not going to go to great depth within this particular passage. Some of you, that may frustrate you (laughs) because you want to go very deep with this. Because there's some questions that get raised out of this that we won't fully be able to answer today. But that's not the point. What we want to look at is what does this say to us about the lostness of man? So I want you to read this passage along with me, looking at it in the scriptures as the word of God spoken to us as truth. I want you to look for one thing, repetition. What is repeated often in this passage? So let's read it together. It starts in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift, the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a long passage, a weighty passage, a a hefty one there. But you'll notice the repetition of a couple of words. The repetition of the word one used 11 times throughout this passage. Paul is trying to point out to us in that repetition, the key of our identification with both Adam and with Christ. We also see the repetition of a word called reign. Reign. Describing these two kingdoms, it's used five times, the kingdom of Adam and the kingdom of Christ. And those two reign over different groups of people. We see the repetition of the the words much more. Five times that is used. In Jesus Christ, we have gained much more than we lost in Adam. And so Paul uses these repetition of words in order for us to see a couple of things and to contrast two men, Adam and Jesus Christ. And he begins to unfold an argument here. And as you look at this, this chapter, these, these verses here, verses 12, 15, and 17 are the key verses. You saw them in yellow on the screen. 
They're really the key verses, and if we hone in on those, we will find the primary things that Paul is trying to describe to us. And today we're going to look mostly at the negative side of this, Adam's reign. But yet we're going to point out the hope that's to come out of this. But what does it mean about Adam, being in Adam? Paul is arguing in verse 12 that death is the consequence of sin. The destruction of, of and the death of everything is the consequence of sin. You see, sin brings destruction. It brings the tearing down, the, the pulling apart of everything that God intended. All that is good falls apart because of sin, literally a physical death. The body was introduced to death because of that, but also the death of everything else, spiritual life. The death of everything in our world and the, the crumbling of everything around us. That was introduced because of Adam and the effects of that and the curse. Paul is saying that death is originated in the human race because of Adam's sin. But are the consequences of that, of Adam's sin, to be the consequences painted on us? Could he possibly represent us? We find in verse 12 the truth that all people are represented by one man, and that's Adam. All of us are represented by one man, Adam. Because of sin, all man is lost. It places us in Adam under his reign. And so in verse 12, we find this truth to be, to be found. Therefore, just as sin came into the word, world through one man, and death through sin, and so spread to all men, because all sinned. You notice it doesn't say because all sin. It says because all sinned. It's an intentional move in the language to say, you'll notice the sin was past tense. It was a definitive act that happened. And because of that, all of us are represented by Adam. All of us as descendants of Adam are represented by him. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one who is righteous, not one. And it's Adam's sin that brings our sin nature. In a sense, we too were present with Adam. We too would have done the exact same thing if we were in Adam's shoes. You may say, it's unfair. How can Adam represent me? That's not fair. In our country, we have elections, right? And we elect a person who represents us. We may not like that they represent us. We have presidents, we have senators, we have mayors. And we may not like the person who's in that position. But the effects of what they decide, the effects of what they vote on, affect us. And we have to live with it. And it is what it is. And... In the same sense as that, Paul is trying to help us see that because of Adam, the decisions of Adam have the same effect on us. The, the conditions, the implications of Adam's fall, fall on us. The implications are great. Being lost. A sin nature that's passed down to us. Being guilty before God. Because we're guilty, being due condemnation before God. 
And that's true of the people that we can't see because there's no windows in this room. But of the people that lie outside of Christ. It's a reality that man is in this state. And because of that, it's important that we understand this and we're moved by this now because people's eternal destinies are at stake. If we're wrong on some of these doctrines and these thoughts of of what Scripture teaches us about this, people's eternal destinies are at stake. Because of Adam's sin, because of the consequences of sin, it leads to an eternal separation. We're going to walk through a couple of things that are implications of this condition called being lost. Scripture describes to us a division that will happen after death. A division that is described in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. And these, the unrighteous, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Revelation chapter 20, in that chapter, this description of the great white throne is painted and there's this the talk about the Lamb's book of life being opened. And it says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There's a division. Those who are in one of two kingdoms under Christ or are still under Adam. And there's a reality about this. And it's the reality of hell, a real physical place that we don't like to talk about, and a theology that, honestly, if I could take something out of Scripture, if I could take it out of the way things work, this would be one of them, because it's, it's tough. It's a tough theology. But it's true. Scripture defi- that describes a physical place. The place called hell, a place where there's outer darkness, a place of eternal punishment, of torment, a bottomless pit, Where the wrath of God is, of eternal destruction. But I think the most terrifying description is 2 Thessalonians 1.9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. See, the horror of hell, to be honest, is really that God's presence is fully removed and man gets what he wants. Where man lives eternity apart from the presence and the the holding back grace of God. And that state is eternal. It's not a place where they will just be consumed. It's an eternal place. It's not the description that a few modern theologians have come up with where at some point these people will disappear from this state. The Bible describes it both throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament as a place that is unending in an unquenchable fire. Jesus said the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. It doesn't just consume a person and, and then they simply end. It's a forever state. And the weight of that, the weight of that, brothers and sisters in Christ, should move us. 
the reality of it should move us not to be afraid, but move us to the point of Jesus' heart. Brendan Manning once described having a sense of terror before God, yet being able to be okay before God. He said, I want neither a terrorist spirituality that keeps me in a perpetual state of fright about being in right relationship with my heavenly father, nor a sappy spirituality that portrays God as such a benign teddy bear that there is no aberrant behavior or desire of mine that he will not condone. I want a relationship with Jesus who is infinitely compassionate with my brokenness and at the same time an awesome, incomprehensible, and unwieldy mystery. The power of God, the holiness of God causes me to tremble. It causes a weight to come upon me when I think of our world. But we go back to Romans 5 and we can praise God that we can be saved by one man, Jesus. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The picture of Jesus Christ, the idea that the kingdom of God being greater than the kingdom of Adam, that through one man, yes, lostness was put on to humanity, the possibility of salvation is brought through one man, Jesus Christ. We're saved by him alone. The potential for salvation comes only through Jesus Christ and Paul is not arguing that all men will be saved. It's not like the first Adam. In the sense that the first Adam, the way we received that was by being descendants of him. But the reception or the, the imparting of, of God's grace to us through Jesus is given in a different way. To all who call upon him, who call upon his name, they will be saved. The glory of God is that man does not have to stay in that state of fallenness, of brokenness, of being condemned before God. If we turn to Jesus Christ. You may look at this passage and wonder out of some of the verses like say verse 18. Therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Is Paul saying to us that all will be saved? He's not saying that. Paul wouldn't contradict what he would be saying in other passages throughout the New Testament. If we look at the broad strokes of the New Testament, we see throughout it that there's a a, a broad and, and narrow way that the sheep and goats, the lost and found, the eternal life and eternal torment, that there is a division. The New Testament describes that there are some who are not saved. Paul is not contradicting in that way, but what he's doing is saying the potential for all men to be saved is there because of Jesus Christ. And so how are we saved? It's by the work of Jesus Christ that is imputed to the person. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. Guys, that's the best news in the entire world. 
That is the grandest news. The fact that there's a God in heaven that loves us, that wants us saved. That came and took a step of love towards us that we could be saved. What about people who don't hear though? What about people who live in a place where they don't get to know the good news of Christ? You know, it makes sense for people who reject Christ, who heard the good news and and reject him, for them to not be saved. But what about those who don't hear? You know, it's a little less of a popular doctrine today to have an understanding of this, but it's an orthodox doctrine to realize that those who don't hear are not saved. We need to look at what Scripture says in this and not live based simply on what we would hope God would do or based on what we think His character is like, but to really look at what Scripture says on it. Romans chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteous unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul in that passage in Romans chapter 1 makes it really clear. Natural revelation is not enough to save a person. Natural revelation is intended to cause us to say, what's out there? There must be a God to seek truth. But God's method for bringing the message of the gospel is a human messenger. And so Paul had gone on in this same book of Romans. In chapter 10, he says this to us, verses 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of of those who preach the good news. See, Scripture, I think, is very clear. And I don't like it, but it's clear that people outside of Christ are not saved. Is that a compelling reason for missions? Is that a compelling reason to go to Grand Junction, to Loma, to Montrose, across western Colorado, Across the United States? I believe it is. There aren't any second chances after death. There's no verse that states or suggests that. It's only a hope maybe that we would have. But there's no verse, nothing that we can base that on. Luke chapter 13 talks about that idea of no second chances after death. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door. And you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. 
In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and you will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves will be cast out. We've looked at some pretty tough truths today. Truths that are weighty upon me. But if these things are true, it changes everything about the way we live. It would change everything about the way we see people. Jesus Christ has come to seek and save those who are lost. It would change the way that we view Grand Junction. Doesn't Grand Junction need the gospel? Grand Junction needs the gospel. Western Colorado needs the gospel. It needs more gospel presence because the truth of the lostness of man is true about individual lives of the people that we see. When we walk down the street, when we see people who are lost in sin, as Christians, a lot of times our eyes just see a person passing by or we quickly judge a person. But Scripture says they are lost, and they probably don't even know it. I've talked to other pastors around Grand Junction. I've heard this description. I don't know what it's based on, but that in their community, there's maybe 10 to 15,000 people who are in churches on a Sunday morning. And obviously, there are other believers that are able to be in church every Sunday, but let's, let's say that that's one out of every 10 people in Grand Junction. But if we do want to be really generous, let's say two out of 10 people in Grand Junction know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Are we content that 80% of our neighbors, 80% of the people around us don't know Jesus Christ? I don't think we should be satisfied with that. We need to pray for more We need the heart of God to be put within us that we would be moved to do something about it. Jesus said in Matthew 9.36, it's actually not Jesus' words, but it's a description of him. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I praise God that Jesus had compassion. An emotional and an an emotion that led to action for me. And an appropriate response for a believer would be say, God, would you put your heart of compassion within me, that the weight of these truths about the lostness of man would sit in me. We're not responsible for the outcome of what a person would choose. The Holy Spirit does that. Billy Graham summed it up so well in describing his ministry. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love. One author told a great story. And we'll close with this story. And he said, in a dream, I found myself on an island, Sheep Island. 
Across the island, sheep were scattered and lost, and soon I learned that a forest fire was sweeping across from the opposite side. All were doomed to destruction unless there were some, some way of escape. Although there were many unofficial maps, I had a copy of the official map, and there discovered that indeed there was an, a bridge to the mainland. A narrow bridge built, it was said, at incredible cost. And my job, I was told, would be to get the sheep across that bridge. I discovered many shepherds herding the sheep which were found and seeking to corral those which were within easy access to the bridge. But most of the sheep were far off and the shepherds seeking them few. The sheep near the fire knew they were in trouble and were frightened. And those at a distance were peaceful, peacefully grazing and enjoying life. And I noticed two shepherds near the bridge, whispering to one another and laughing. And I moved near them to hear the cause of joy in such a dismal setting. Perhaps the the chasm is narrow somewhere. Or at least the strong sheep have opportunity to save themselves, said one. Or maybe the current is gentle and the stream shallow. Then at least the courageous can make it across. The other responded, it may well be. In fact, Wouldn't it be great if this proves to be no island at all? Perhaps it's just a peninsula and great multitudes of sheep are already safe. Surely the owner would have provided some alternate route. And so they relaxed and went about their business. I began to mind, in in my mind, I began to ponder their theories. Why would the owner have gone to such great expense to build a bridge? especially since it is a narrow bridge and many of the sheep refuse to cross it even when they find it. In fact, if there's a better way by which many will be saved more easily, building the bridge is a terrible blunder. And if this isn't an island after all, what is to keep the fire from sweeping across the mainland and destroying everything? As I pondered these things, I heard a quiet voice behind me saying, there's a better reason than the logic of it. My friend, logic alone could lead you another way. Look at your map. And there on the map by the bridge, I saw a quotation from the first under-shepherd, Peter. For neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other way from the island to the mainland whereby a sheep may be saved. And then I discerned, carved on the old rugged bridge itself, I am the bridge And no sheep escapes to safety but by me. The author goes on and he he says this. In a world in which nine of every ten people are lost, three of four have never heard the way out, and one of every two cannot hear the church sleeps on. Why? Could it be that we think there must be some other way? Or perhaps... We don't really care that much. Father, you loved us. You sent your son to us. And this week, I'm going to guess that if we seek you for this, you'll put divine appointments in our way where we can begin to have spiritual conversations. Lord, conversations that maybe don't go all the way to giving the full explanation of the glory of the cross, but where we can begin to describe you, Jesus. We can begin to describe your love that came into a world that was completely lost, a love that changed many of our lives, 
a love that we have sung about this morning and we've been compelled to, to praise you about. God, will you begin to give us opportunity to describe that to a world that so needs it? Because eternity is at stake. And Father, we pray for the lives and the souls of people in Grand Junction. We pray for the lives of people all across the western slope of Colorado. The lives of people around the world who need a messenger, who need to hear the glory of the gospel. And God, we pray that you would put a burn inside of us. Put a burn in us to reach them with the gospel. Begin to do something here at River of Life that is founded on some of these truths about about the, the eternality of eternal states. But as founded also on the glory of the gospel, the love of Jesus Christ that awakens us. And so we pray this all in Jesus' name.